Rock is Lit! Welcome to Rock is Lit, the podcast that takes listeners on a quest to find the very best rock novels and explore the propulsive energy and raw power of these stories about music, the people who make it, and the characters who love it. Rock is Lit is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. I'm your host, Christy Alexander Hallberg, author of my own rock novel, Searching for Jimmy Page from Livingston Press. Find me on Facebook at Christy Alexander Hallberg and Twitter and Instagram at Christy Hallberg. Visit my website at www.christyalexanderhallberg.com. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, follow, and spread the word. We've got some great guests on this episode of Rock is Lit. Janet Fitch is here to talk about her fabulous rock novel, Paint It Black, which is set in 1980 in the L.A. punk scene, with the music of the Germs, the Weirdos, and other legendary bands of that era looming large in the story. Then we're joined by two giants of the real L.A. punk world of that period, writer, punk rocker, and rock and roll witch Pleasant Gaiman, and Nicole Panter, former manager of the Germs. Stick around for the last segment of the episode to catch Pleasant and Nicole share their memories of that pivotal moment in music history. But first, we welcome Janet Fitch to the show. In addition to Paint It Black, which was made into a 2017 feature film, Janet Fitch is the author of the novel White Oleander, a number one national bestseller that was translated into 24 languages, named an Oprah Book Club selection, and made into a feature film in 2002. Her most recent offerings are her epic novels of the Russian Revolution, The Revolution of Marina M., published in 2017, and Chimes of a Lost Cathedral, published in 2019. Janet has also written a young adult novel entitled Kicks, short stories, essays, articles, reviews, and contributed to anthologies. A veteran writing teacher at such institutions as USC Master of Professional Writing Program, the UCLA Writers Program, and Pomona College, she continues to lecture frequently on fiction writing and regularly teaches at the Community of Writers Summer Workshops and in their online program. She lives and writes in Los Angeles. Welcome to the show, Janet. Thank you for having me. So I know you're a fan of punk, especially bands like The Germs, but let's find out what else you're into. Let's play a set of five questions. What's the first album you bought? The first album I bought was The Monkees. Here are the monkeys. My parents bought me the first Stones album. Okay. And this it was so bluesy. It was so testosterone heavy. It was scary for me as a sixth grader. Yeah. Um, and it's like what I really wanted was a monkeys album. But obviously they went to a good record store and somebody sold them. A good album. I love the Monkees. So anyway, that was my first. Look, I have purchase. to admit, I I got into the Monkees late. I used to watch the TV show when it was airing on MTV in the eighties, and I actually did have a Monkees poster on my wall right next to my Led Zeppelin poster. So I get it. Right. What <laughs> was your most memorable live music experience? Wow, that is the toughest question because I I. Um, I've seen so many things that, you know, indelible. Uh, at the moment, I'm going to say seeing a three-hour concert by with Leonard Cohen oh, wow. uh, at 80 or whatever he was and doing knee drops and, I mean, three hours. It was, that was insane. Um, and then I'll have to say I saw... 
uh, Joni Mitchell and Crosby, Stills and Nash at their first concert at the Greek Theater before oh, wow. Woodstock. Uh, that I was a big Joni Mitchell fan. So who are these other guys? I didn't even care. They were <laughs> wonderful, of course. And their friend Neil came out. And uh, <laughs> and then I saw a concert, uh, a New Year's Eve concert, 1981, I think, in New York, uh, Mink DeVille. Mm. And the Mink DeVille New Year's Eve concert in New York was unbelievable Amazing. unbelievable yeah he has such style ah uh, you know and uh brass section and, and those are amazing picks oh. yeah it covers the gamut <laughs> Journey, I, what I, <laughs> yeah what i would give to see Joni yeah, mitchell she's fantastic if you had the opportunity to interview an artist or a band who would it be and what's one question you would ask i like old rockers you know I, i'm not I've interviewed rockers and, you know, I don't find it very, um, it's fun, but not in highly informative often Yeah, <laughs> because, you know, you, you go into rock because you have this energy and stuff. And, mm-hmm. and so a verbal interview isn't that interesting in, in certain ways. Um, what's interesting about them is in, is more the physical presence and the music. And mm-hmm. um, I would like to interview, I like old rockers. So I would go with, if I could have had an interview with Leonard Cohen, if I could interview Patti Smith, if I could interview Neil Young, you know, that's, they have something to say. You know, I'd ask Patty, like, you know, um, how do you stay so unarmored, you know, mm-hmm. that things still come in and the sensitivity is still there and the ability to meet people where they're at um, and not be bitter, you know? I mean, she's so lovely. And then Leonard Cohen, you know, just what, and Neil, you know, just what's the secret of staying creative all your mm-hmm. life? and not kind of ending up as a tribute band to yourself. I'd love meeting Bjork. I'd love to interview Bjork. You know, there's another fountain of creativity. Yeah. You know, unbelievable. What's on your playlist now? Well, that's what I, I was thinking. You know, I've been in in the dumps. So I created a I Will Survive playlist. And I'll tell you, it's Gloria Gaynor. <laughs> it's... um. Uh, there's a woman, Cecilia Noel, Cecilia Noel and the Wild Clams. She's a she's a powerhouse. Uh, Sol Sol, Queen of Sol Sol. Mm. She's Peruvian, and uh, that stuff never quits. She is. You just plug yourself in. I have um, Patty, of course, is on that, and Farrell Williams is on it, and Curtis Mayfield oh, wow. moving on up. You know, yeah. um, Destiny's Child, <laughs> Survivor. Um, That's pretty eclectic. Yeah, but it's nice. It has a nice flow, you know. I, yeah. Which artist or band would you like to see featured in a rock novel in some capacity? Hmm, that's such a good question. Um, you know, the certain of the stories are so heartbreaking. Yeah. I mean, Janis Joplin. Yeah. Um, uh, Amy Winehouse, Je- you know, any section of Joni Mitchell's life, 
<laughs> would be a great novel. I don't think I know of any rock novels with any of those people you just named. So somebody needs to write it. Let's take a short break and we'll be back with Janet Fitch. And make sure you stick around to hear Pleasant Gaiman and Nicole Panter talk about their experiences in L.A. during the early days of punk. Back in a moment. This is Janet Fitch, and you're listening to Rock is Lit. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. And we're back with Janet Fitch, author of the novel Paint It Black. For listeners who may not be familiar with the novel, here's a synopsis stolen shamelessly from the Janet Fitch Writes WordPress site. Here it is. The aftermath of a suicide set in 1980 punk rock L.A., Josie Tyrell, art model, teen runaway, actress in student films, thinks she's found her chance at real love, an entree to a greater world in Michael Faraday artist and Harvard dropout, son of a renowned concert pianist, and grandson of a legendary film composer, until the day she receives a call from the Los Angeles County coroner asking her to identify her lover's body. What happens to a dream when the dreamer is gone is the central question of Painted Black, the story of the aftermath of Michael's death, and Josie's struggle to hold on to the true world he had shared with her. Compounding her grief and rage is Michael's pianist mother, Meredith, who returns to her native city with the news of her only son's death. Despite a fierce mutual enmity, the two women find themselves drawn into an eerie relationship reflecting equal parts distrust and blind need. Now, I wanted to read that because that synopsis touches on so many of the major themes in the book that I want to talk about. But for me... The novel is primarily a gut-richingly honest exploration of grief. And maybe that's partly because I'm bringing my own baggage to the book. I lost my mom and my husband to cancer, so I'm, I'm familiar with how dark and tenuous that 
navigating grief can be. And you nailed it. it. It's the book is so spot on and honest. And you're not afraid to take your time in exploring that and how Josie and Meredith deal with it. And I couldn't help wondering as I was reading what your relationship with grief is like, because, because you're so in tune with the realities of that process in the book. Well, I think that grief is just su- such a part of human life. The older you get, the more you've lived through. And I think that um, the aftermath of a suicide is especially difficult because there's such a, an amount of anger Uh you know, there's there's anger. Yeah. There's a residual anger in every death, but in suicide, which is you know somebody does this on purpose, um, you know, there's mm-hmm. it's a it's a it's such a complex set of emotions, and they supersede each other one after the other. They come back around, and you know they oscillate, and and then you get a break sometimes, and then it comes flooding in and and um my editor didn't like the title um he is a, also a music guy and he thought that it was a mm. 60s title 60s song and an 80s story a punk rock story he thought he liked the the x mm-hmm. song um uh sex and dying in high society he thought that should be the name of the book and mm-hmm. I I love X, but I thought that sounded like a Jackie Collins novel. It sounded horrible, <laughs> horrible. And I tried all different uh, yeah, titles. Yeah. You know, there were some Nico song, you know, some uh, Jackson Brown songs that Nico recorded. Fairest of the seasons she did with the Velvet Underground, and th- these days. Um, and these were on my playlist when I was working on the book. Um, and I thought of using those, but I kept circling back to paint it black because it, the song is, it's about a certain kind of grief and it's not the picturesque romantic, you know, she walks the hills in a long white veil kind of thing. It is really angry. It's like, if I can't have the love that I want, um, dead the hell with everything. And uh, so yeah. it, it's the specific kind of grief that Josie um, is suffering from in the book. I think that title works on another level too. Paint it black. Michael is a painter right. and his work becomes increasingly dark right. the closer he gets to his suicide. And there's, you know, there's, with that song, Paint it Black, there's a kind of a, a drugginess snaking through it mm-hmm. that with the sitar and this psychedelic alt reality kind of thing going on. And Josie spends a lot of time in the story in an altered state. And she does turn to drugs and alcohol to, to, and, and sex too, to try and, and, and deal with the pain and the anger that she's feeling. So it works on that level as well. And, and I think also it lets readers know that music is going to be a big part of the fabric of the story. You know, it's like, wait a second, pay attention to this. There's there's something important implied in the title. So I love the title. I think it works, even though you never actually reference the song in the narrative. You do in the epigraph, but 
I think it works on so many levels. I'm glad you stuck with it. Thank you. Yeah, for me, punk rock had such a lot to do with the writing of the book. Um, Mm -hmm. Because the character of the suicide um, comes up in the world of classical music and the perfectionism of that world perfectionism beyond like his mother who is a concert pianist says oh there's not there's no room for good enough concert pianists you know there are too many geniuses she tells her Mm -hmm. artist son nice huh whereas Josie is a punk rocker and in punk rock it's just like make some noise make a mark get up there and you know do something and he gravitates to her to that sense of of permission and and that you don't have to be a genius you just have to have the courage of the expression yeah he even says to her at one point that he loves her because she gives him permission and it it's that works on so many levels and you know and, and with punk rock it's perfection is is the enemy of punk rock perfection is the enemy of art you know it's it's when I was writing this book, I was in kind of a bad state when I started writing it. I I had a, lost a book before that, um, and uh, I was p- being I was pretty down. And I started writing this book, and it's it's this um, kind of art. Making art is a dance between permission and perfectionism. And so I so saw myself as Michael being torn in both, you know, mm-hmm. between his mother, you know, the perfectionism of the classical world and the and the possibility that you can just express yeah. yourself of punk rock. I had Jeff Jackson, Love him. author of Destroy All Monsters, the last rock novel on the first episode of the show. I asked him to name some great rock novels and he included Paint It Black in his list. And he said of your book, and I quote, it takes place in a lot of rock and roll clubs and is part of that environment, which kind of makes it a rock novel, but a less obvious one. Do you think of Paint It Black as a rock novel? Yeah, I think of it as a punk rock novel. Okay. What, what would be the difference? You know, um, because it's about the spirit mm-hmm. even more than the music. It's about the attitude of I, I'm I have a right to walk here. I have a yeah. right to take a breath. I have a right to not be ashamed of myself. You mm-hmm. know, Josie comes from a very working class background and kind of um, kind of a tough family and being judged, 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 judged. She's like number six of eight in a family mm-hmm. that um, the teachers don't like them. Mm-hmm. You know, they're considered violent and you know, criminals and what have you. And, um, you know, it's that feeling of, you you know, just try to judge me. You know, just just try. I, I'm allowed to walk here. I'm allowed to walk with my head up. And that's, that's really punk rock. And what's great is she comes into L.A. in the punk era, mm-hmm. punk era uh, the art world and the punk and the music world were like a dead overlay mm-hmm. as you know in many in many bohemias the art students and the musicians you know it's like a dead overlay um 
so she starts working as an art model and she's um uh you know th- there isn't the fine line between you know or the all this apartheid between yeah. the arts you know they kind of they do bleed into and bleed and feed mm-hmm. into each other and film as well you know in the punk era i was a film student so it works you know it all works in together you know, I think it's fortuitous that I'm talking with you on National Dive Bar Day. It is actually National Dive Bar Day. <laughs> uh-huh. You once said, uh-huh. I live in the arts as much as I live in my regular life. Patty Smith is as much a part of my life as having to go to the gym or pick up my kid or anything else. It's another kind of literature. Any of the three principal characters in the novel, Meredith, Michael, and Josie, could have made a similar claim. So let's let's talk a little bit more about how important music is in the novel, because they all three of those characters really have their own soundtrack. It's it's very different kinds of music that play a role in the book, and 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 their role is very different. Yeah, well, Meredith is a tr- is a musician, so. She is a pianist, and she gravitates to the spectacular concert pieces, the most difficult concert pieces, you know, like the Brahms, mm-hmm. you know, forget which, the second second piano concerto is a huge mm-hmm. monster piece, and everybody's afraid of it. So it's the big test. And that's her debut. She comes out and does that as her professional debut. That's right. She has to knock them over, and she does. Um, she, you know, hugely. Um, it's a you know the piano repertoire is a, is beautiful. It's varied. It's full of nuance. Um, just about every emotion you can imagine can be. You can find classical music to match that mood. Um, whereas Michael's, um, music, he, he likes, aside from, you know, being well-versed in the classical repertoire, Mm -hmm. he doesn't know anything about rock. He's terrified of punk, you know, of the punk milieu and, uh, people that Josie is very comfortable with. Mm -hmm. It, It freaks him out. So he's kind of divorced from his own bass note you know like there's very little earth in his makeup he's uncomfortable with that heavy bass you know he's uncomfortable Mm -hmm. with rock and roll he doesn't have that permission you know it takes Josie to even you know begin to open that for him and then you have uh so what he likes is music from the 20s he plays piano but he, you know, he doesn't try to be, a, you know, doesn't try to be a perform, you know, professional in any way. But he plays, you know, he likes music from the twenties, you know, like mm-hmm. Louis Armstrong stuff, mm-hmm. and um, uh, oh, there's so many wonderful twenties, yeah, writers and stuff. And so he gets a job uh, playing piano for kiddie dance classes, and uh, he likes it. You know, they call him Senor Music. (laughs) And he plays light stuff, whatever he feels like playing. And so he actually makes his living 
for a short, you know, while his mental state can handle it, uh, makes his living as a musician. And then Josie is somebody who, when she came up from, came down from Bakersfield, where she's from, having been despised by just, you know, dismissed, despised, stereotyped, you know, by just about everybody, she walks into a burgeoning uh, punk rock scene in mm -hmm. L.A. And she just walks in like, I mean, they said about Mayakovsky that he walked into the revolution as if it was his own living room. She wow. walked into punk rock like it was her own living room. It was yeah. perfect timing um, and acceptance and approval and mm -hmm. uh, um, expression of that kind of defiance. Yeah. It was perfect for her. There's just so much emotion and characterization that comes through with the music that the characters like. It's mm -hmm. you, you handle that in such an interesting way. Yeah. Well, Josie likes LA punk. So mm -hmm. the germs were kind of the the kings of the punk scene. Picturing those clubs, mm -hmm. I kind of made up a, a club that's like their home base that was a combination of a couple of very famous mm -hmm. clubs in L.A. Uh, um, I call it Club Rat, and it was kind of a combination of Al's Bar, which was ground zero of L.A. punk rock, and down by the tracks uh, in downtown L.A. And then uh, there was a club called Club Lingerie. Uh, in Hollywood mm -hmm. that um, was a little bit more femi, you know, it had uh, uh, the waitresses were, um, you know, they were wonderful. They wore wonderful costumes. Their hair was all ratted out. And, and so it was a more art. That was more like an art rock scene. I saw the cramps there. Oh, it was yeah. amazing. You have described Painted Black as a three-character psychodrama set in L.A. during the week following the suicide of Germ's lead singer Darby Crash and John Lennon's assassination in New York. The Atlantic Monthly stated that, and I quote, Fitch's Los Angeles is so real it breathes. What is the significance of time? And I know the significance of place. Punk was, the LA scene was really burgeoning at that time. But, but what, what is the, the significance of setting it when you did? Um, it was, uh, it was a kind of a weird time, 1981. Um, it was, the death of John Lennon was, was kind of a bigger death. It was a death of the last of the peace and love era. You know, it was the last of that sweetness. Um, and then, you know, you have uh, punk rock was sort of moving towards its own cliff at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, 
it became uh, less feminized. You know, it was like the girls got pushed out. It became more, you know, hardcore. So you have said that Paint It Black was inspired in part by Ingmar Bergman's 1966 film Persona. That story revolves around a young nurse named Alma and her patient, a well-known stage actress named Elizabeth Vogler, who has suddenly stopped speaking. They move to a cottage where Alma cares for Elizabeth, confides in her, and begins having trouble distinguishing herself from her patient. Now, I love Ingmar Bergman's films, but I had not heard of that one. I had not seen that, so I had to go watch it. Oh, boy. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. I was really struck by the film's exploration of duality and insanity and, and personal identity. And, and just the title, Persona, seems to reflect that Jungian theory of persona, where for Jung, persona was the social face of person presented to the world like a mask. And, and it was intended to make a specific impression on others, but it was also meant to conceal the true nature of the person. And this is certainly apropos when it comes to Michael and, and Josie, too, I think. But let's talk a little bit about how Michael is struggling with personal identity, how, how that manifests itself in the story. Yeah, well, he's trying to just to be uh, someone separate from his mother's huge influence and be, be a guy with a girlfriend and a shitty job, you know, kid job and living on the cheap and rowing on, you know, sitting out in a park playing the guitar you know kind of stuff having fun you know being a regular person because that was the one thing he was never allowed to be is a regular person and he likes Josie because she comes from really regular people uh if not like kind of a harsh background so she sees in him where she wants to go a more interesting cultural cultured traveled you know life of where people respect you and he wants nothing more than to get away from all that and live you know close to the ground and be street smart and be more like Josie so the two Mm -hmm. of them almost you know trading places and then the Uh way the persona was the short story of painted black was called I think it was called the house not right in the head as I recall. Okay, so it it started out as a short story and then worked its way into a novel. It started out as a short story, and then it was a story about a boy who kills himself in his mother's house, and his girlfriend wants to see Mm -hmm. where he killed himself. And so she goes in, the mother's tranked out on the couch, lets lets her go up and try, she tries on the boy's clothes and comes down in his clothes. And the mother just starts talking to her as if she's Mm. the boy. And she starts Mm -hmm. answering as if she's the boy. And you realize, like, she's never going to leave that house. So it's like this little gothic story. Uh, Because persona is so interesting, you know, where they start to change identity. Um, And... uh, then I had to figure out, like, who are these people? How did they get there? Why did the boy kill himself? You know, what happens, you know, how, what happened after that? So the, the book kind of first came 
forward as I tried to figure out how they got there. And then I had to figure out what happened after. Yeah. Even Josie is struggling with personal identity. And she's an actress in these student films. And there's this this one role that she takes after he dies. And the character's name is Alina. And that character takes on a whole new life or a life of, of her own. And Josie is, is sort of thinking of that character as somebody who would have been more appropriate for Michael than Josie was. Somebody who would have fit into that world better. So she's like trying right. on that persona. Right. Yeah. And then it was very fun. I was, uh, during the punk rock, I mean, in 1981, I was a film student um, and making these student films. And, you know, you can't imagine the ridiculous level of ego. So it's sort of my comic relief, the the filmmaker and, and that those little <laughs> student film, um, you know, how inflated the self-image and... Josie's somebody who's, yeah. you know, as a punk rocker, she, she she knows it's just, it's such bullshit. But she also will forgive the bullshit. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah, that's the way he is. But they go to a, a set uh, that somebody's, somebody left for Europe and told one of the filmmakers that they were leaving. So they go in to shoot while these people are gone. And it's this beautiful little house up like um, Sunset Plaza above the strip, white carpets and, you know, and they proceed to completely destroy this house. (laughs) And Josie doesn't try to stop anything. You know, she's somebody who's not trying to prevent disaster after losing Michael. It's just like, fuck it. Too bad about those people, you know, and their pretty house and their nice life and going to Europe, you know, too bad. Well, speaking of houses, I, I was flashing on Miss Havisham with Meredith's house. You know, she's got everything set up just so in Michael's room, and it, it's very much kind of this house full of ghosts. Yeah, it is a house full of ghosts. The ghosts of the ghosts of Europe. You know, her mm-hmm. father was a mm-hmm. composer in Vienna and left ahead of the Nazis. Um became a film composer in Los Angeles. And there is a very famous film composer that this is actually, turns out, I didn't know. Really? Actually, very similar to his story. Um, okay. Mm-hmm, a guy named Korngoot. Korngold, with a K. Um, but mm-hmm. the guilt of leaving Europe, the guilt of the, what ha- the fate of the people left behind, um, and then his reaction to his daughter's success, his own fate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that house yeah. is has a haunted quality to it, you know, which I, I like. One of the motifs in the novel is the 1913 poem Trans-Siberian Prose and Little Jean from France, which is a collaborative artist book by Blaise Sendrars and Sonia Delaunay-Turk. I probably massacred her name. The book features a poem by Sindrars interlaced with an almost abstract stencil print by Delaunay Turk. The poem describes the 16-year-old poet's train journey through Russia during the Russian Revolution of 1905, and that ride includes devastating scenes of war. There are a couple of lines from the poem that keep popping up in Paint It Black, but the one that seems particularly poignant is the melancholy question the poet's companion, Jean, asks, Blaise, are we very far from Montmartre? 
and that's just haunting. What what drew you to this work? Yeah, the 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 sixteen year old poet uh, Sindrars takes a whore from Mamart, who is probably his age, on a trip trip on the Trans Siberian. So that we're talking about eight thousand miles away yeah. from Mamart, mm-hmm. and they just keep getting further and further away, right? You know, and all she can think of is, you know, she's not very, not very sophisticated. And they're like going into, they're going through Moscow, they're going east um, towards China. And she's trying to contemplate, she's trying to put her mind around how far they are. And he can't even begin to explain to her how far they are. They are so far. Um. Yeah, it's a beautiful poem. What is it about the poem that drew you to it? And what is its significance in the story? The two teenagers, out of fish out of water, the guy has some idea, and this girl, the the little whore, Jean, is like, goes along with him Mm -hmm. just because, you know, Mm -hmm. I guess he's paying the ticket. (laughs) Uh, It's uh, the romance between the two of them, the poverty and the romance uh, are so, and the fragility of their existence, you know, really fish out of water, um, is like Michael and, and Josie traveling. They live in a room that Michael has completely painted all the walls. If anybody has ever had a, when you're a little kid, they would give you a box, like the washing machine would come in or a big box. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but I painted the inside. I painted a whole <laughs> room inside. So you go inside and there's furniture yeah. and rugs and, you know, paintings on the walls and windows and stuff out the windows. Well, he's painted their room mm-hmm. like that. And it is Mamart. Mm-hmm. And they are little Jean and Blaze. Uh, and uh, it's that turn of the century Mamart with the ladies of the black stockings and the red hair piled up. And, and so they really get into the fan. They live the, f- they're, they're a very romantic couple, you know, so they enjoy these kind of games, mm-hmm. you know, the fantasy games right. that they play. But then things start to get very real. And, uh, you know, it's a whole different layer. Well, what... I find so fascinating about that poem is that it only functions as a readable book when it's fully open, it's folded and, and you have to unfold the whole thing. And apparently it's very long, but you can only make sense of it if you unfold it and, and look at it in its entirety. And Josie in Paint It Black really can't begin to see or understand the real Michael until she begins to uncover all of his secrets, all of these layers and get to the heart of who he really was. So there's that symmetry there too that works. People are much more complex, that everybody has a piece of you, but it's not until you're dead that the pieces start coming together and you're going, wait, wow, you know, look at this. What piece do you have? And so that's what sends the two women, the mother and the, and the girlfriend together, even though they mm-hmm. can't stand each other, is each of them has a piece. What did you think of the movie adaptation of Paint It Black, which I just, I literally just watched it this morning. Oh, 
I love that <laughs> movie. Uh, it was made by Amber Tamblin, the artist, yes. who, the actress who has also is a poet, wonderful poet, and has been writing. She wrote a fabulous novel recently. Uh, she's that woman just can do anything. And she had such a vision for what she wanted to do with that book. Um, and when somebody has a vision like that and a desire um, relating to something so strongly, how can you not let them do it? Mm. Um, I feel like her vision was not completely the same as mine. Mm -hmm. But I think whenever an artist wants to base a work of art on somebody else's work of art, it doesn't have to be the same. One inspires yeah. the other. And then it's like, what inspired her about Paid It Black was the relationship between Josie and Meredith, between the two women. Mm. So Michael plays a pretty small role in the film. Whereas he plays a, a much larger role in the book. Um, oh, yeah. You know, basically. I think the film did a good job of depicting the bleakness and the chaos and the blackness of grief. There's a heaviness yeah. to the film, as and there should be. Okay, what what's next for Janet Fitch? What you, what you got going on you want to tell the folks about? Well, I'm writing a book set in Los Angeles in... 2012. Okay. Um, with a uh, middle-aged woman who's sort of a, uh, she's kind of a rough, rough around the edges mm -hmm. person who left home many years ago and has to come back to deal with an ailing parent who she can't stand. Um, and it's, uh, so it has L.A. now. It has L.A. in the 70s when this woman was in high school mm. and the 60s when she was growing up. And then her mother, who was a dancer uh, in the 30s and 40s, and she was a dancer at MGM. Mm -hmm. She was a child, you know, during the Depression. There was a, a children's theatrical school and all of the big... Uh, child stars came out of that school and this woman was also in that school mm. so it's great you know so I have the layer you know it's yeah. layered in time yeah I love that that you're covering the 60s 70s and, and onward there's a lot of a lot of material for you to mine with that right that sounds great Janet thanks so much for being on the show keep up with Janet at her website janetfitchwrites.com Pick up a copy of her fabulous novel, Paint It Black, and her other fabulous novels wherever you buy books. We'll take another short break, then we'll be joined by Pleasant Gaiman to talk about the L.A. punk music scene of the late 1970s and early 1980s. Later, Nicole Panter jumps on the show to share her memories of the germs. Hi there, this is Pleasant Gaiman, and you're listening to Rock is lit. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. 
we're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. We're back with more Rock is Lit. I'm excited to welcome Pleasant Gaiman to the show. Pleasant Gaiman is a Hollywood rock and roll icon. During the 1970s, she was one of the first punks in Los Angeles, documenting the scene she helped create in her fanzine Lobotomy, which led to writing for many of the top mainstream rock publications. She's published literally thousands of articles nationally and internationally on everything from rock and roll to the paranormal, from magic to homeless teenagers. Her memoirs, short stories, and poetry have been widely anthologized and many works were recorded on her spoken word CD, Ruined. She is the author and or editor of eight books, including her brand spanking new Rock and Roll Witch, a memoir of sex magic, drugs, and rock and roll. During the 1980s, Pleasant toured fronting her three bands, all of which released multiple recordings, The Screaming Sirens, The Ringling Sisters, and Honk If You're Horny. Since the early 1990s, under the stage name Princess Farhana, she has appeared as a professional belly dance and burlesque performer and teacher, touring all over the world. She's danced and acted in numerous motion pictures in music videos and on TV shows, and has been featured in many documentaries on belly dance and burlesque. In 2009, she was the star of Steve Balderson's feature-length documentary, Underbelly, A Year in the Life of Princess Farhana, released worldwide in theaters, as well as on DVD. A practicing witch, her work as a psychic, intuitive tarot reader, and energy healer has been lifelong. She currently shares her gifts with clients worldwide. In March 2020, she launched the popular podcast, The Devil's Music, also on the Pantheon Network, which explores the intersection of rock and roll and the occult. It is available across all podcasting platforms. Pleasant, welcome to Rock is Lit. Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Don't freeze my computer. <laughs> Too bad it already happened. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations on the new book. I read it recently. It's a it's a great read. It's especially for anybody who's interested in the LA punk scene from the 70s, 80s, 90s. So, you know, Janet Fitch's rock novel, Paint It Black, is set in the LA punk scene of the very early 1980s. In fact, the story takes place right after the suicide of the Germs lead singer Darby Crash and John Lennon's murder in December 1980. And the main character is this 20-year-old punk rock girl named Josie. You were around Josie's age when you were on the scene in 1980, so you're the perfect person to add real-world context to the novel. I mean, you were there documenting what was going on in various publications and singing in punk bands like the Screaming Sirens. And by the way, I love the song, Don't You Fade Away and Love Slave. I've been playing that on YouTube. Not thinking. <laughs> yeah, it's a great band. But how did you become enmeshed in that whole scene? Um, I was always, I was into rock and roll and, and witchcraft from like the time that I was around 12 and, uh, you know, like watching shows like the Midnight Special on TV or, you know, Don Kirshner's rock concert. And when we moved to Hollywood, the first thing that I wanted to do was go to the Whiskey and the Roxy and all of that, because I already knew all about them. Mm -hmm. And um, 
so like within within like a few months of moving here i was the ticket taker at the whiskey because i was all about rock and roll and um then i I, I went to a Queen concert right when I first got got to LA. Nice. Yeah, and I took the bus by myself down to the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium. Um, you know, looking like a, I was wearing like a 40s dress and just looking like a crazy, like I had orange henna hair down to my ass. <laughs> and, and I had on hiking boots and a 40s dress, which now like a lot of people look like that, but back then nobody did. And so I sat right. down, I sat down um, and this, really like hot looking like man with silver hair turned around in his chair and said would you like some of this and handed me a joint and it was tony curtis mm -hmm. and so uh, in my head i'm screaming i'm smoking dope with the stars <laughs> i'm like it hot because <laughs> you know because i'd only been in hollywood for a few days and so then um but i got distracted when i saw these two guys walking down the aisle that looked so amazing and um one was Paul Beam, who turned into Bobby Pin and then Derby Crash, and the other was Pat Smear, um, whose real name was George Ruthenberg. And uh, I threw my number at them on a matchbook, and they caught it, and they called me the next day <laughs> on the landline. So we started hanging out, and um, they lived in they lived near the beach, and I lived in Hollywood. But they knew a lot of people down there, and I was starting to meet people in Hollywood. And all of us had the same taste in music. And mm -hmm. it was nothing that was on the radio in those days, you know. We liked, yeah, we liked, you know, stuff like Roxy Music or Bowie, and nobody liked that in those days. So um, then everyone started going to gay discos because they would play not disco music, you know. At, you know, they play really good rock and roll as well as some disco music or just taking stuff over. And then there was a kind of a split, like half the people that wanted to dance to disco music sort of formed into one faction. And then the rest of us um, wound up like hanging out all the time on Sunset Strip. And uh, and then um, I got a flyer for The Mask. I heard about The Mask, which is the first punk club in LA. And it was before it was opened yet, they were gonna have an opening party. And wow. I'd gone into Granny Takes a Trip Boutique on Sunset. Mm -hmm sell them some t-shirts and Jane Weedland was there trying to sell them her t-shirts and at first we were eyeing each other suspiciously like we were you know retail competition um, <laughs> and then she started talking about punk rock and I, and I was like I I am into punk rock you know there's this you want to come to this like party for this club and then and then from there there was other people that somehow had heard about it and that's how the early punk scene in LA started and there was originally like a hundred or less of us and it was just always nicknamed in the LA scene the first hundred you know wow so well everybody knew everybody then if it was that small oh yeah and still do like still even if you haven't seen someone in like a decade and mm -hmm. a half or something like you will run up to them like screaming and yelling and just pick up like right where you left off yeah so going back to the germs didn't you become Pat Smear's first serious girlfriend yes I did oh what was that like it was great. It was we. It was really fun. At first, I couldn't decide between both of them, <laughs> between Pat and Darby. But um, so yes, we became an item, and um, you know, like it. It was really fun, and then and then um, you know, we both just went on to other romantic pursuits. But I was still hanging around yeah. with them and the germs, and uh, 
you know, like just everybody knew each other mm -hmm. in those days. And there was a lot of that sort of, uh, you know, there was not just a lot of like great art getting made and, you know, being really political and having really fun, lots of fun doing really crazy things, mm -hmm. you know, like, because there was nothing that no one ever had any money. I mean, not at the point like it is today, you know, because everyone was living communally in like tiny apartments and stuff. Um, but the, the scene started growing and morphing and, you know, bands, some, some clubs would have bands play and then like immediately either shut down or ban the band because everyone wanted to try and punk wasn't getting any radio airplay in Los Angeles mm -hmm. for Rodney Bingenheimer's show. And um, so we're all still really close. Like, like I said, because it was such, a, it, it would be like for, for someone listening to this podcast now, you got to understand that in those days, there was no social media, there was no email, there was no cell phones. You had to call someone from a pay phone or your landline or go to their house. And then mm -hmm. I, I still can't figure out how we all wound up at the same gigs or in the loitering at the same same spot on a sidewalk and how we all met, but we all did. And we, I think at this point in time, we all recognize it was such a unique, magical time. We're still like really tight, like everybody, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned bands living communally and you were living in a place called Disgraceland. And there's a, a punk house in Painted Black. It's called the Fuck House. And it reminds me a lot of Disgraceland based on the description of the fuck house in Painted Black and your description of Disgraceland in Rock and Roll Witch. Tell me a little bit about Disgraceland. Disgraceland was wild. Um, our landlord was Mickey Hargitay, who is Mariska Hargitay's father and Jane Mansfield's ex-husband. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. <laughs> and so... Um, it was one half, like it was one quarter of a gigantic 20s duplex right in the center of Hollywood. And, um, you know, like just every touring band would come through and either stay there, like we'd let them stay there, or they'd, um, you know, come for a party and parties went on for days there. Um, my, my most famous roommate was Belinda Carlisle. Um, but I also had oh, wow a, yeah I know for years and um and then the other longest running and still best friend was is my publisher from um my last two books Showgirl Confidential and Rock and Roll Witch Iris Berry but like everyone you could think of stayed there from like major skateboarders like Tony Alva and Christian Hasoy to like um any traveling band you can think of, you know, people that lived in LA but wound up being in famous bands like Guns N' Roses used to hang out there. I mean, I can't even tell you, like Screaming Jay Hawkins used to come over at four in the morning to smoke marijuana with us. Holy cow. Yeah, no, I, I'm telling you, it was, it was wild. It was really wild living there. And we were always arrears of the rent and the phone was always getting shut off. And you always had to step over like, you know, bodies who were passed out or like having sex mm -hmm. <laughs> to get anywhere. Um, it was crazy. Now, where was Joan Jett living? Didn't she have an apartment across from the whiskey at one point? Yeah, she lived right on San Vicente across from the whiskey. And that was when, right before Disgrace when I was living on Palm Drive, right around the corner from her. And we would always have parties at my house, which we called 909 or her house, which everyone just called Jones. <laughs> um, 
And uh, it was really convenient and like, oh, I had this idea at Joan's house once and, and we all started doing it. We were trying to order liquor from Gil Turner's, which is up the street on Sunset Strip. Mm -hmm. And we were all underage. So my idea was that we should all wear underwear and fishnets. <laughs> and like Joan had a lot of bondage stuff and we placed the order and then we'd answer the door like that. And then they would probably give us the liquor and it worked. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> so, so then we started doing it all the time and then if we ever called the lick because we couldn't go in there to buy it but on the phone yeah. you kind of pretend that you were an adult you know, or you know legal age to drink so <laughs> we would call Gil Turner's and our order was always the same it always started out with the same cigarettes the same brand of booze you know mm -hmm. so we could hear in the background when it was when we'd be telling the order we could hear delivery boys going I'll take that no no I got this <laughs> <laughs> of course now wasn't Belinda Carlisle involved with the germs at one point well too? yes and no I mean we were all friends with with each other you know like and actually uh, um she was supposed to be their drummer and her name was going to be Dottie Danger but she never wound up playing and I don't even think she rehearsed with them okay yeah so um you know, just in those days, like you would just, <laughs> it was just normal to ask someone, you want to be in my band, like regardless if you played <laughs> something. And then usually what you wound up, you wound up playing something like if your older brother had a drum kit or if some, if your neighbor had a bass you could borrow or like I was a singer because I didn't own any equipment. That was how, <laughs> that was how, how all of those <laughs> Yeah, but you sounded good though. Yeah, well, everyone wound up sounding good, but I mean, also, the, the recordings, though, people that weren't there didn't see everyone's first gigs, which usually sucked. <laughs> but we're, you know, we're so much fun because the places we we're playing were small and the audience all knew each other. And the electricity in the room, uh, uh, you know, going on at the gigs was fantastic. You know, mm. everyone was really excited and really happy all the time. But then, you know, if you, if you made a, you know, if you hear one of those old, you know, now like you know half a century old cassettes they, from a live show everyone's probably sounds like just a bunch of garbage and not the band, <laughs> not the band garbage but just trash <laughs> yeah but um you know it was it was great it was a it was such a unique time and um yeah everyone was collaborating and all this stuff. well pleasant what have you got going on now that you want to let listeners know about well, um, like you said, I do have a brand new book, my ninth book, and it's called Rock and Roll Witch, a memoir of sex, magic, drugs, and rock and roll. And there's a lot of punk in it. Mm -hmm. If you're in LA, monthly, I have, on the third Wednesday of each month, I have an occult burlesque show, an all witch burlesque show. And so it's got stripping and rituals and psychics all under one roof and on a lovely patio. Um, and that's that. That's been running for five years. We just had a. Oh, wow. That's great. It's really fun. It's yeah. Bell Book and Candle at El Cid in Los Angeles. Or you can follow them on Instagram. Very cool. With, with an underscore in between every word of it. Thanks so much for being on the show, Pleasant. This has been a hoot. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I got to read Paint It Black now. Yeah, yeah. It's a fantastic novel. Find out more about Pleasant Gaiman at her website, pleasantgaiman.com. 
You can buy her new memoir, Rock and Roll Witch, there too, or wherever you buy books. Check out her very cool podcast, The Devil's Music, on the Pantheon Network. And don't forget to pick up a copy of Janet Fitch's novel, Paint It Black, at your local indie bookstore or find it online. Let's take one last short break. Then Rock is Lit is proud to welcome former Germs manager Nicole Panter to the podcast to talk about her experience working with the band. Hang tight. Hi, this is Nicole Panter, and you're listening to Rock is Lit. We're back with more Rock is Lit. For this final segment, we're joined by Nicole Panter. Nicole grew up in Palm Springs, the stepdaughter of Pat, the Philadelphia cheesesteak king. She ran away to the big city in her mid-teens and began a countercultural journey that led her to a group of like-minded delinquents who would become the first generation of L.A. punk rockers. Nicole managed the germs from late 1977 till April 1, 1980. She moved from the germs to a group of comedian, writer, actors, who produced the earliest iteration of the Pee Wee Herman show as a live stage show that became the hottest ticket in Hollywood. She ran off to London with a rock star who shall remain unnamed. Nicole lived in Europe for five years before returning to California, where she worked in the movie business, first as a director's assistant, then as a script doctor. She wrote a book of short stories and edited another. Both were reviewed nationally, which led to an interview on NPR's Fresh Air, which led to an invitation to teach at Cal Arts. For 10 years, Nicole taught one of the most popular all-institute classes, which the students referred to as punk writing. For the last 28 years, Nicole has nurtured several generations of screenwriters in both live action and animation. Nicole went back to school in 2012 and got a master's in psychology, followed by a doctorate. Her area of research and study is the use of psychedelic substances in the treatment of anxiety, depression, and PTSD. In addition to teaching at Cal Arts, she sees patients privately in Los Angeles and Palm Springs. She was widowed when her beloved William Daly, a rare book dealer in Los Angeles, was run over by an elderly driver in 2017. She lives with Lulu and Cleopatra Jones, two drunken toddlers in dog suits in Los Angeles and Palm Springs. Welcome to Rock is Lit, Nicole. Thank you. Thank you for asking. I know you've read Janet Fitch's novel, Paint It Black, which is the focus of this episode. So you know how important the germs and the L.A. punk scene are in the story. So the main character in Paint It Black is a 20-year-old woman named Josie. And she loves the germs. And she's often depicted playing their music in her car, which has bumper stickers of bands like the germs and X and cramps on it. For Josie, it seems like punk is as much of an attitude and a way of life as it is the music. And the Germs founder and lead singer Darby Crash seems to crystallize all of that for her. How did you meet Darby and how did you become manager of the Germs? Well, it was a very small scene, so we all knew each other. Uh, I don't remember that initial meeting, really. Um, And we were sitting on a curb and he was complaining about not being able to get a show because his fans tore up the clubs. And I made a suggestion about how they could go around that and said they probably needed a manager. And he said, would you want to manage us? And because I came from a home where I was never told by my parents that I could aspire to doing anything really 
Um, I was a stepchild. It wasn't known by me that I was the stepchild, but I was treated like a stepchild. So my aspirations were never encouraged. I mean, I was a bright kid. I taught myself to read when I was three, but none of that was ever really, you know, you can do anything. Um, So when Darby said, why don't you manage us? It was a way for me to participate because I was too convinced that I could never do anything creative, although I longed to. Mm. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, my involvement started with that. Later, much later, mm-hmm. I kind of became so fed up with not being, not giving breath to my creativity that I started to write and people started to read my writing and mm-hmm. I started to get the kind of feedback that encourages you to write some more. So I found my creativity, but it wasn't there in the 18, 17 year old me at all. Yeah. This was years later that you started to write. Yeah. And as far as being a manager, Mm -hmm. I had great survival skills and I knew it couldn't be that different from surviving you know, I'd been responsible for myself <laughs> from an early age. So I thought, well, mm-hmm. you know, I can do this. And I did. So I loved the 1981 seminal punk rock documentary, The Decline of Western Civilization. And you've, you're featured heavily in that, as, as is Darby and the rest of the Germs and several other bands like X and Black Flag and several others. I was... I was fascinated by something that Darby said, though. The director asked him, why do you get so loaded before you go on stage? And he basically tells her he does it because performing is scary and he wouldn't be able to do it if he didn't get loaded. Here's a short excerpt from that documentary. Find me a fucking beer. Why do you get so loaded to perform? That way I don't feel myself getting hurt. I mean, it's scary out there. No, it's real scary, like, because when we play, we're right down there in the audience, and there's lots of creeps out there. And there's lots of people that have grudges against us now, too. And so if I didn't get loaded, I wouldn't be able to do it. I just broke this egg. What were the germ shows like? Um, the germ shows were pretty much a train wreck, as you can imagine. <laughs> when your front person is so loaded, they can't stand. And their musical repertoire was pretty limited, so it served that. You know, they were a spectacle. So, yeah. you know, and Darby, I imagine it was also very difficult for him because what Darby was really genius at doing was communicating the pain of his own life in turmoil and now we know as a closeted gay man and so i imagine to get mm-hmm. into the space where you perform and you're exercising those demons must have been very scary you know letting yeah. that thing that you were containing out must have felt like being on the edge of no control so how did such a chaotic band wind up making an album if if they they can barely even get through a live show 
how is it that they were able to write these 17 songs? And Darby and Pat wrote all of them. Pat, the guitarist, uh, they wrote all of them, didn't they? Yeah, they did. Um, the studio conditions were very different from live performance. And the decline, I have to mm. say, I'm, I'm not going to point any fingers at who fed Darby a lot of substances the night that they performed, but someone did. And I was not happy about it. And right. I think that it made for a sensational film, but I'm also not going to say that. So you're saying that that was done on purpose for the sake of the film. Somebody in the film crew did that. I'm not going to say specifically who I think might have okay. benefited from doing that. It's many years later. Um, and you certainly yeah. didn't have to hold Darby down and pour it down his throat. But I think that, and, and that performance on film does sort of replicate a few of the shows. But I I think it was um, it helped make that film more sensational than it needed to be for their segment of that film. Darby, pick up the mic. The mic. So in the studio where that same group of creative people outside the band were not, it was an entirely different story. Mm -hmm. um, Bob Biggs, who ironically had been married to Penelope, who made the decline, um, he owned Slash Records at that point, and mm -hmm. he had the vision to say, I want to do a germs record. And, you know, you could practically hear every band in Los Angeles rolling their eyes <laughs> at the germs being the one to get to do an album financed yeah. by Slash. Mm -hmm. But I think Bob was a visionary, and I think Bob knew that somehow somebody could get something out of them that would stand the test of time. And they did, and it was done in this studio. Um, it was a real studio. It wasn't just someone's, you know, bedroom with egg crates on the walls. Yeah. The sound. Um, and the engineer was a guy named Pat Burnett, who it turns out is kind of the MVP of this story because he knew how to record them. He mm. knew. What yeah, I was do. just going to say, ever since it came out in October 1979, it's never been out of print. So that says something. Yeah, it's it's kind of sad because it shows you what they could have done had things gone a little differently. You know, and Pat, Pat the career that Pat Smear has had. I had not heard of the germs before I read this novel. So um, 
it was it was interesting to learn about them and and picture Josie riding around listening to that album and what it sounded like and and knowing a little bit about Darby Crash now uh, and and that Joan Jett actually was listed as a producer, but as I understand it, she wasn't that heavily involved in the making of the she album. She was there in the studio, but she was, you know, wrestling with her demons at that time. And it mm-hmm. was, you know, Pat Burnett, really, who also went on to be a really valued producer for Gun Club. Why did you stop managing the germs? Um, I had a husband who was, although he was punk adjacent, he got really freaked out by the violence seeming and kind of gave me an ultimatum. Wow. And I was over it anyway. It was, um, Mm -hmm. it was... I'd been doing it for a couple of years. Um, I was getting bored being kind of, you know, doing that. And so I moved on and I moved on into the peewee thing. And I was also kind of over being a punk at that point. Um, Mm -hmm. There was an influx. Well, the scene had gotten ugly by then. It was starting to. And I just... It wasn't fun anymore. The scene wasn't fun. Um, The germs were sort of fighting amongst themselves. They were descending. Darby was descending kind of more into that, whatever his trip was that eventually Mm -hmm. killed him. Um, And Mm -hmm. I was kind of a little more of a grown up, I think. And I wanted a more fulfilling and fun thing to be doing with myself. I just was kind of yeah. over it. The novel Painted Black takes place right after Darby kills himself. And then the very next day, John Lennon is murdered. And main character Josie is more upset about Darby's death because John Lennon's death just totally overshadows it. So the germs had already broken up. And you weren't working with them anymore by then, but do you know what was going on with Darby, what his descent was like? You know, I had seen him. He came to my house. He he went to England and came mm-hmm. back having fallen into the thrall of Adam Ant, which was so okay. not Los Angeles punk. That's I mean, different. It was, you know, there... Adam Ann had a slogan that was ant music for ant people. And Darby got a huge mohawk and he showed up at my door on roller skates in an army coat with this giant, giant mohawk (laughs) and war paint. And he just showed up to hang out and he seemed kind of okay and it seemed really weird that he was so enthralled by all of this. I mean, Adam Ant was super cute. So if I'd known that Darby was gay, I might've mm-hmm. connected those dots a little more efficiently, mm-hmm. but it just seemed incongruous to me. And I took some Polaroids of him and he roller skated into my house and we had a really nice visit and 
the next time I heard anything about him, it was getting a phone call early one morning, waking me up mm. saying Darby's daddy killed himself. I, God. you know, he'd had a really turbulent childhood. His mother was, seemed to be a stranger to stability often. He grew up without a father. Mm -hmm. I don't think he knew who his real father was, much like I didn't. Um, yeah. And I, 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 the scene was not gay friendly back then. There was a very yeah. distinct strata of homophobia. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like things are now, where everybody is who they mm -hmm. are and it's none of your fucking business. It wasn't that way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there were all these little girls from the valley, little rich Jewish girls who hung out with Darby. And the fiction was that they were his girlfriends. You know, the girl mm -hmm. in the decline was not his girlfriend, we now know. Yeah. and. You know, that's, I wonder if he'd hung on a little bit longer, you know, to experience right. more acceptance of who he was, if things might not have ended differently. I, yeah. I don't know because I wasn't around him in those last few months. And the last time yeah. I had seen him, he seemed okay. As I said earlier, that Darby kind of crystallized this whole punk ethos for for Josie and she's much more upset about that than the loss of John Lennon the, the former Beatle so there's something about him what what that thing that she says about nobody even knows about Darby Crash we all said that we all thought that mm -hmm. we all thought oh Darby yeah really because it was completely overshadowed by Lennon's death and you know, it, it's yeah. like the early punk rocks. We didn't love the Beatles. John Lennon didn't mean much to us. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm speaking for myself. The the stinky, dirty Rolling Stones were way more important. The Beatles were sort of like sort of scrubbed and acceptable. <laughs> you know, um, and I just, mm. you know. Woke up to the news of Darby and John Lennon. I think they both died on the same night, actually. And just, yeah. I just thought, oh, Darby, fuck, really? Well, that got fucked up. Y you couldn't help but think that, yeah. really. You know, because we hated the yeah. hippies. And John Lennon kind of personified he came from yeah. that background yeah so so what Josie yeah. says we all said that you know that was kind of the popular sentiment mm -hmm. um not to be you know now of course as an adult I have a different view of things you know I see the importance of John Lennon yeah but back then it was just like right the grown-ups got one more over on us. But, you know, it's all these years later, and here we are talking about Darby. Yeah. So he wasn't forgotten. No, no. 
Well, and I think, you know, the two factors that ensured that were the decline of Western civilization, where there's a lot of film mm-hmm. on him, and the fact that he died. Mm-hmm. I mean, the best band in L.A., nobody yeah. knows who they are except those of us who were there. Now, so. I know that you did not like the script for the 2008 movie based on Darby's life, What We Do in Secret, and you disliked it so much that you had the screenwriters write you out of it. So what do you think they got wrong about Darby and the germs? Well, I think they got everything wrong about yeah. it. Um, a, I'm a teacher of screenwriting, among other things, yeah. and the first thing I said to them is if one of my students turned this in, I would fail them because it's a bad script. It's not cinematic. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's, and it, it didn't bother me that it played fast and loose with the facts. It's just that it's, as someone else said to me, it's just that they did it so badly. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just an awful movie. And because people mm. kind of don't think to look any further, they're like, oh, yeah, I saw that Germs movie. They didn't have a girl manager. You know, it was sort of part of mm. the thing of, you know, and part of it, I think, is there's been an attempted erasure of my participation, partially mm. because I was a girl, partially because I'm a polarizing figure who speaks my mind. You know, I was not on board with that reunion tour where an actor played Darby. That was so far from my punk rock that it just made my head hurt to think about it. You know, I was outspoken about it, and that doesn't win you any popularity contests, but Mm. I I don't really give a shit about that. (laughs) So there's that. What do you say to people who only know about the germs through that movie? What What do you tell them they should go and check out? Watch the yeah. decline. Watch the yeah. decline. That's the a decline. fabulous documentary. Yeah. Um, because that's, it is. And, you know, you can see at the time, I, we couldn't see it, but I can see that the filmmakers are a little bit condescending yeah. towards the subjects which is kind of interesting. Um, You know, that kind of Mm -hmm. made Penelope's name, that film, as someone outside the system. So it's Mm -hmm. interesting, and she was older, you know, and and there is sort of a thin veneer of, oh, look what the kids are up to. Isn't it precious? Um, So that's kind of interesting. But all in all, it shows us in our natural element for the most part. And it was um, a moment in time that's pretty much caught. So what do you think the legacy of the germs is? That's a really good question because I'm sort of shuffling in my head through, well, we're in a really dire situation right now globally. Is what what the germs did important in that scheme of things? Because for me right now, everything seems to go back to mm-hmm. that. And I guess, you know, the germs weren't political by any stretch of the imagination, and many yeah. punk rock fans were. Um, 
So it's not like we have the same warning that a lot of other bands were saying mm-hmm. at the time, you know, like the way things are going, this is not yeah. going to end well. And the germs didn't say that. I think the germs genius was Darby was a person in pain whose verbalization of that pain and his song lyrics spoke to a lot of other people who were in similar pain. I think the legacy might be that on one hand, Darby kind of shared that with his audience but on the other hand, he committed suicide. Mm-hmm. And I I do wonder how many kids have listened to that and gone, oh, he did that, so that's okay. Yeah. And, you know, do the math. Right. I mean, I wonder about that a lot. And I hope that's not the case. I hope that it's more a cautionary sure. tale. I mean, someone asked Paul Rosler where he Paul was in the screamers and he was a really good friend of Darby's from high school. And he said, where do you, they asked him, where do you think Darby would be today if he had lived? And he said, I don't know. I think he'd be an overweight drunk. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know, and all signs yeah. to that too. Uh, an overweight over the hill drunk. Sorry. Mm. So, you know, it's it's hard to say what the legacy was um, because it could take you down the bad road. You know, is it a legacy of telling teenagers suicide's okay? Or is it a legacy of, oh, you can write about your pain in your song lyrics and let other people know that this pain was there? But then I always come to like, but you didn't survive it. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Nicole. You can find Nicole on Instagram at Posey P. Once again, check out Pleasant Gaiman's podcast, The Devil's Music on the Pantheon Network, and pick up a copy of her new memoir, Rock and Roll Witch. And while you're at it, snag a copy of Janet Fitch's amazing rock novel, Paint It Black. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes of Rock is Lit to hear from more great rock novelists and special guests who will offer commentary on the music or musical events featured in these novels. If you like what you hear, subscribe, follow, and spread the word. And check out the Rock is Lit vault on my website for news, bonus material, and outtakes from episodes. Until next time, keep rocking and reading and getting lit. Rock is Lit!
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 